Welcome to Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast series, Managing Influenza in the High-Risk Patient. This, the second of two podcasts. This episode features the question and answer session from a live PCE symposium. The faculty is Dr. Michael G. Eisen, a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Organ Transplantation at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. The moderator is Mary Knudsen, DNSC, NP, FAAN, a professor of clinical nursing at the University of California, Irvine, in Irvine, California. At the conclusion of the podcast, please go to pce.is slash flu to claim your credit. This episode is accredited for 0.25 AMA Category 1 CME credits, 0.25 ANCC contact hours, and 0.25 AAPA credits. So let's go ahead and do some of our um, questions from um, you, our audience. So the first one is from Kathy. Are we expecting a robust flu season, just like RSV is on the rise now, which is is sort of at an unexpected time? Yeah. So what I will say is that it's almost impossible for us to predict what's going to actually happen. Um, uh, It is very likely that uh, we'll have uh, a a robust flu season, but again, it also will depend on how well of a match the vaccine is um, uh, to the circulating strains. And it if it's a good match, uh, usually the rates are lower. Um, that being said, because there were so few play, uh, cases of flu um, last year, the number of uh, flu cases to inform vaccine selection was much uh, less robust than we would uh, for normal flu seasons. Um, additionally, uh, what we don't know as well is uh, will all of the different uh, flu subtypes subtypes emerge, we saw one of the subclades of the H3N2 uh, become far less uh, common, um, and whether or not uh, uh, that uh, means that H3N2 is going to uh, reduce in frequency or even potentially disappear is uh, something that we'll just have to wait and see. All right. This is one from Rosemary. I've taken the flu vaccine for greater than 30 years until 2009 when we had H1N1, and um, 14 days later, I was diagnosed with shingles, so 14 days after that vaccine in 2010. I received the vaccine, and again, 14 days later, a mild case of shingles. And she talked to someone at the CDC, and they said not to get the flu vaccine again. Do you agree with that? Um, I don't uh, agree with that. Uh, You know, shingles uh, is a very different virus uh, from uh, influenza. Uh, it is very unusual to truly get shingles twice in a lifetime. Um, so, uh, you know, definitely being evaluated for why that is happening. Um, if you're 50 or older, uh, and even if you're younger than 50, uh, given the recurrence of the shingles, I would probably get the shingles vaccine, uh, which may boost your response and uh, make that less likely to reactivate. And if it did occur another time, uh, you know, it may be something where uh, taking prophylactic uh, uh, acyclovir or valacyclovir around the, the shot, if it's temporally linked. That being said, uh, you're still at risk for flu, and particularly if in your, you're in the healthcare uh, setting, it really is something that's not only protection for you, but also protection for your patients to get the flu shot. And so something that you should be doing relatively routinely. All right. This is a question from Yelena. Since the COVID-19 vaccine was initiated under the emergency use, many patients are concerned over its safety. 
Um, there are patients that ha have reported that it's affected fertility in women and others who say it's causing some other health issues. What do you say to those patients whose family members got hospitalized or who had a severe side effect after taking the COVID vaccine? Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, so I think it depends on what they're they're uh, uh, having as concerns. So there is, as of now, no data uh, linking uh, COVID nineteen uh, vaccines and uh, fertility issues. So that's one to easily debunk as a uh, non fact. Um, uh, I think the other issue is is that um, patients can get sick with uh, uh, after the the COVID nineteen vaccines. Um, some people have little to no symptoms. Some people have pretty significant symptoms. Uh, that being said, those uh, symptoms are a sign that the immune system is responding and that they likely have uh, very robust uh, immune responses. At this point, there have been over 300 million doses of the uh, vaccine delivered. Uh, and so far, oh, the only thing that really has panned out uh, as far as uh, risk um, related to the vaccine is an exceptionally rare uh, clotting uh, uh, issue, particularly in younger women, uh, and perhaps uh, an increased risk of uh, uh, myocarditis that's generally very mild and, and uh, self-resolving uh, in patients that uh, uh, have gotten the vaccine. So in general, it's incredibly safe. Um, you know, I, I th one of the things that I talk about if people are worried about safety is I remind patients that while this vaccine was developed very quickly, the regulatory pathway for a vaccine approval um, is the same for every uh, vaccine, that you have to have a certain number of patients, usually somewhere around 30 to 40,000 patients, which is what we're enrolled in these studies. They have to be followed for a fixed period of time, usually uh, two to three months after the, the last vaccine is given to make sure that there's no clear safety signal. Uh, and then when the vaccine is rolled out, that the, uh, you implement a, a range of, uh, asthma, of uh, systems to identify risk. And we have three major uh, systems. We have the V-Safe uh, system, which looks at symptoms after the vaccine. And basically with uh, literally uh, millions of patients enrolled into that, there were no symptoms that were more different or severe than what was discovered in the, uh, the studies. There's the VAERS uh, system where uh, clinicians who uh, recognize something and think it may be temporally related to the uh, vaccine reported, and that's how the uh, clotting uh, uh, issue was uh, developed. And then there's a more passive system that uses uh, electronic medical records that we're all using to identify if there's differences in rates between vaccinated and unvaccinated population. Uh, and that uh, vaccine safety data link uh, has not identified uh, any significant uh, association with very rare events. So, um, you know, we've got millions of people vaccinated uh, and a fair amount of data that was collected uh, uh, relatively rap rapidly uh, from this uh, vaccine. And really, again, no vaccine has had the kind of money thrown at it. And that's part of the reason why the vaccine was developed and uh, implemented so quickly. All right. This one is from Elsa. If all symptoms resolved completely within 24 hours after the first dose of oseltamivir and they started the medication within two hours of the, of the first symptoms, does that conf confirm an influenza diagnosis? And is there any evidence that oseltamivir might be effective for other viral infections? 
Yeah, so I'll take the second question. Oseltamivir is only active against uh, influenza. It acts on the influenza neuraminidase. It doesn't affect human uh, proteins. And uh, there are uh, there are a few other viruses that have neuraminidase, like parainfluenza, but, but it's different enough that it doesn't have any activity against those viruses. So it's very unique to uh, influenza. Um, so the fact that the person got better within 24 hours of starting oseltamivir doesn't confirm that they had influenza, um, but is what I would expect, particularly if you start the, the therapy uh, so soon after uh, initiation. The only way to, to know for certain is to do a test uh, to, to prove that the patient has uh, influenza infection. So this is a question from Diane. She's actually seen a client for anxiety who's had multiple issues since receiving a flu injection four years ago. Some reaction to dental medications, aches and pains that vary, cognitive issues. And the patient really feels like it's directly related to receiving the flu vaccine. How do you you approach that in in a patient? I think, you know, the, the reality is that uh, I would say while any condition um, uh, can, can be unique to an individual, the data, um, particularly for neuro, neuro, neurologic and psychiatric uh, uh, problems, has been very carefully looked at uh, with uh, the neuromendase inhibitors, particularly oseltamivir. And there are some huge studies. There was a study that involved the entire Korean population, a second that involved nearly all patients uh, enrolled in uh, uh, insurance programs in Japan, and really found in both cases that there was no association uh, between uh, oseltamivir use or uh, uh, flu vaccines and any of these kind of neuropsychiatric uh, complications. Okay. What is your preferred treatment regimen for influenza in a pregnant woman? Uh, the preferred uh, treatment uh, regimen is uh, oseltamivir. That's uh, where we have the greatest uh, degree of evidence uh, in pregnant women. Uh, so really uh, is uh, what is preferred. If they don't have underlying lung disease and are nervous about taking a systemic uh, medication, you can always also use uh, zanamivir, which is inhaled and generally not uh, 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 absorbed uh, significantly into the body and so then won't uh, expose the infant. Okay. Is there any, is there an advantage to giving biloxivir for the treatment of influenza in a patient with an immunosuppressed household contact in order to shorten the potential time of their infectivity? Yeah. So theoretically, yes. Uh, so you drop the viral load very, very quickly. Um, this is what the uh, the current study that's ongoing uh, to uh, define whether or not there is a true benefit to that uh, reduction uh, in viral load in terms of secondary transmissions. Okay. And then what is your approach to treatment in an infant if they're less than two weeks old? Um, in that kind of case, I think it's important to talk to a pediatric infectious disease doctor and see what uh, they would advocate. Okay. This next one is from Stephanie. If a high-risk patient, an adult, tests positive for both COVID and flu, can you give them both the antiviral and the monoclonal antibody for COVID at the same time, or does one take precedent over the other? 
Yeah. So the the answer is you can and should give both uh, therapies for both uh, viruses. Um, uh, so what we know uh, from particularly data from China, where there was a fair amount of co-circulation, is patients with flu and COVID-19 tended to be sicker and tended to be more likely to get very sick. So giving treatment for both uh, agents is going to be uh, critically important. Um, uh, and monoclonal antibodies would be a great choice if the patient doesn't need to be admitted if they are sick enough to be admitted, then I treat them for flu and uh, COVID-19 with uh, remdesivir plus or minus dexamethasone, depending on whether they needed oxygen. Okay. And this one is from Miriam. What is the age limit for the prescription of biloxivir? So currently the age limit uh, for biloxivir is 12 years of age um, for both both prophylaxis and uh, treatment. And that's partly because uh, we're talking about pills. For uh, younger uh, patients, they may not be able to swallow the pills effectively. Um, there was a study called Ministone that uh, looked at patients using a granule formulation um, uh, that was completed and has been submitted to the FDA. Um, so it's not yet approved for children uh, under 12 years of age, um, but it may uh, become approved uh, for that age population with the option of the granules uh, before the, the flu season gets started. I think we'll just have to wait and see uh, what FDA uh, decides in the next couple of months. All right. And this is our last question. How do you track influenza susceptibilities for the NAIs and veloxivir over the course of the flu season in order to try to inform your decision of which one to prescribe? Yeah. So in general, unless you hear otherwise, uh, the, all of the circulating strains are uh, susceptible to the nermididase inhibitors. Uh, the CDC does track this. Uh, if you look uh, on the uh, flu view uh, page on CDC, you can look at that data. But historically, uh, really, there, it's, we've had persistently uh, susceptible virus. With one exception, the, the flu season right before the 2009 uh, pandemic, uh, uh, the uh, H3N2 viruses uh, or sorry, the H1N1 uh, viruses had become resistant to uh, oseltamivir, and the CDC was very clear about uh, providing updated guidance uh, and uh, clear communication to providers about the fact to, that they should avoid the use of uh, oseltamivir uh, in patients empirically um, uh, because of the uh, emergence of resistance. So when it becomes an issue, uh, it will be very clearly uh, uh, alerted uh, from CDC. But if you are interested, uh, the FluView uh, page at CDC, um, kind of towards the bottom, has information about susceptibility. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast, and we hope you also tune in to the first episode of this series. You can access that, as well as claim your credit for this episode, by visiting pce.is slash fluke.